and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer. This is our last podcast for 2023. And in this podcast, we'll talk about the stock market, the bond market, and the precious metals market, about what happened this year, what's going to happen next year. I have two colleagues with me who will do just that. Dominic Mayer is our Head of Global Equity and Fixed Income and Management. This year, market analysis company Refinitiv Lipper named his team the small company best overall group in multiple key markets. To get that award, you need to have shown superior risk-adjusted performance against global peers over the last three years across various strategies in equity, fixed income, and mixed assets. Dominic joins us from Zurich. Hello, Dominic. Hello, Mark. And with me here in our Singapore studio is Chris Irwin. Chris is Julius Baer's head of FX and metals trading for Asia, and I don't know anyone who knows more about gold than Chris does. He's even spent a lot of time in our vaults, where we keep precious metals. Hello to you, Chris. And hello to you, Mark. We could spend all day talking about stocks, bonds, and precious metals, but we only have 30 minutes, so let's get started right away with bonds. If we look back to the beginning of 2021, 10-year Treasury had a yield of 0.9%. By the end of 2021, that yield had risen to 1.5%. In 2022, it started at 1.6%. By the end of that year, it had risen to 3.9%. So in 2021 and 2022, investors lost money on treasuries because when a bond yield goes up, its price goes down. And those tiny yields of 0.9% at the beginning of 2021, 1.6% at the beginning of 2022 weren't enough to offset the decline in prices. That brings us to this year, 2023. It started with a yield of 3.9%. It's ending with the same yield, 3.9%. But when I talk with most fixed income investors, they seem pretty happy with the returns that they've made this year. Dominic, can you tell us what's going on, please? Hey, Mark, fascinating markets in 2023 in global bond markets, truly. Investors in bonds are now happy But remember, just three months ago, they were facing a third year of year-to-date losses on their treasury portfolio, for instance, before the recent recovery in the last three months. So we've come a long way, and it's not been a straight line. So true, treasury markets, full maturity or even one to 10-year treasuries, have actually underperformed what people call cash money markets. Just to give a figure to it, one to 10-year treasuries up 3.7. Treasury bills, so very short-dated treasuries or money markets, 4.8. But that is only government bonds. In reality, investors are happy also because they're invested in credit. And credit has significantly outperformed both treasuries and money markets. You could achieve close to 6% with quality investment grade bonds in dollars, you could achieve in what we call quality high yield, which is the better part of what is a very diverse high yield market overall, close to 10%. Incredible, isn't it? And emerging market corporates, which have actually faced outflows through most of the year, delivered close to 7% year to date in dollar terms. 
And the forward-looking returns are also interesting. So indeed, quite a recovery. That brings me on to the next question is, what kind of bonds should people own now? And once again, just to kind of rewind the clock, in the last decade, the 2010s, when rates were really low, a lot of investors were stretching for yields, buying riskier bonds to get the highest yields they could. Now that the yields are higher, they're saying, give me those investment-grade bonds. They already have a good enough yield. I don't need to take more risk. Is that wrong, do you think, Dominic? What should investors be targeting in terms of credit quality? There's nothing wrong with quality when it pays. And as you just mentioned, during a decade and a half of financial repression, with central bank imposing zero or even negative interest rates, investors had no choice but to extend, to go out on the limb with risks. And this is no longer necessary. In other terms, when you look at forward-looking carry or the coupons that you get paid on bonds, now more than half is paid by the treasury and you need to take less credit risk. So it is finally okay, attractive to make money work in quality investment grade, but also we do like quality high yield. These are often rising stars and very strong balance sheets with good capital market access, good discipline. And we also like global emerging market corporates where we get paid a credit premium, of course, also a liquidity premium. And the technicals are looking good, meaning emerging market corporates are, and we believe they will continue to do that, they are borrowing less from the market in dollars than they are paying back to investors with their coupons and maturities. That's what we call a good technical environment. Is that a demand supply thing? You're saying there'll be less supply of emerging market bonds next year? Yes. Indeed. Well, we're talking about income and we've been talking about fixed income, but let me spend a moment with you on equities. And most people would associate investing in equities with capital gains, not with income. Actually, if you look at the benchmark stock market index, the S&P 500 index, it only has a dividend yield of one and a half percent. So if you wanted to invest in equities for yield, Dominic, how would you go about doing it? Mark, this is the most balanced investment environment we've seen in a decade and a half. This is something we highlighted already in May and again in October. Investment is always a risky endeavor, but you can invest with more predictability than before. Thanks to the income generated by bonds, you can also find some very interesting income in equities and combining them makes good sense. So, of course, overall, the equity market does not show a very high dividend yield. But within that, if you construct a portfolio with the objective to generate income, not only from bonds, but also from equities, you can combine those and reach very interesting returns outlook. You can build a portfolio of stocks with sustainable dividend yields of close to 4%, so less than money markets, but still interesting. 4% is a good dividend yield. A free cash flow yield, yeah, 4% is not bad when you think these are also dividends that companies are able to grow with time, as they are not static dividends. They have grown 5% per year, historically. Also, these are companies that have leeway to do more than pay dividends, but thanks to a free cash flow yield, so the free cash flow divided by market capitalization of close to 7%, they're also able to generate capital gains through share buybacks. So we look at 
companies with high and sustainable free cash flow margins, high free cash flow yields, and a willingness to distribute those earnings to investors through dividends and through share buyback. It's what we call the shareholder yield. And that combining that with well-diversified global fixed income portfolios, one can generate not only a yield that is similar or even higher than money markets or treasuries, but one can also have capital gain potential. Well, I'm glad you brought up that uh, growth angle of the capital gain. I'd like to ask you about owning stocks for capital gains. And here I must say kudos to you and your team for having remained overweight the American stock market for so many years. I don't think if I were in charge, I would have done that because just to use the last decade as an example, the American stock market returned 215%. That's over the last 10 years. The rest of the world has returned 60% over the same period. But do we really want to keep such a big overweight on the United States right now, Dominic? Yes, it's a, it's a number of the secular themes that is ongoing, isn't it, Mark? The focus and the value creation of the dollar capital markets and the American financial markets. They have retained their dominance truly when it comes to first being the currency of reference, the interest rate of reference, the policy of reference but also the value creator of reference. So truly, we invest globally in our building block strategies, be them focused on value, be them focused on quality growth, on thematic growth. And the same applies to our credit strategies, really. We look at the world globally. We believe in global opportunity sets, in portfolio construction, in finding opportunities globally. But of course, we often end up with a great majority of allocations and constructions in the USA, where there is, we believe, constant innovation, growth, capital market discipline, and that is all conducive to investment opportunities. So stick with the United States, and it's clear the majority of these quality companies that you're talking about are still there. Dominic, I have one last question for you. Interest rates have gone from zero to 5% over the last 20 odd months, but there wasn't any recession. High-yield bond prices didn't collapse, which is unusual because the companies that issue high-yield bonds don't have enough cash flow to pay back the principal. They have to refinance to keep the thing going. And small-cap stocks that also have to borrow a lot, and uh, their interest rates have gone up. They're up about 15% so far this year. So how do you explain that, Dominic? No recession and actually quite decent performance of companies, both in stocks and bonds, that just superficially probably shouldn't have done so this year, but did. Yes. Mark, this is an important point. In the end, what are the current investment themes, the major ones? One is income investing is back. So that's great. It's a more balanced investment environment. One can generate income and not only rely on capital gains. That's one. Second, and you hint at it, quality. Quality is key because it's a fact that refinancing costs are much higher than before. And some companies, typically the mega caps, are big cash flow generators. They have often strong treasury positions, meaning cash positions net, and they benefit from higher interest rates. Smaller companies tend to be, on average, less cash flow generative. This is normal. They're at an earlier stage of development. And they also tend to rely on shorter dated funding, a lot of them on floating rate funding. So they're more exposed to the rate cycle. 
And that in an economic slowdown is, of course, an accumulating risk. So why was there no recession? Why was there no so major incident in the more leveraged, more floating rate parts of the market? One important element is the resilience of growth. One year ago, we were bombarded with views that a recession was inevitably coming in 23. We begged to differ because we saw that there was very strong balance sheets in the private economy, notably in the US. Corporates had not over leveraged during what we call the COVID cycle, the five-year cycle of sending everyone home, coming with monetary stimulus and major fiscal stimulus. Nominal GDP growth over the last five years was 32% in the US. We added $7 trillion of income and spending to the US economy in just five years. Incredible, isn't it? And money supply growth was even higher. At peak, it was 50% nominal. Now it's 45 because of the tightening of policy. And all that combined to provide with a resilient demand in a system. And you can have, therefore, disinflation. So falling inflation levels, still positive, still markets still expect slightly higher than 2% inflation over the next five years. And we believe that's correct. But still, you have disinflation. The high inflation phase is, is gone. And yet, there has been no recession in the U.S., an element that is very important is the financial conditions have eased in the last three months. That's very helpful. Interest rates down, capital markets up, and think of the wealth effect. The net worth of the U.S. households is up by close to 50% over the last five years. So they can stomach the 22-23% inflation that they have faced over the last five years, thanks to GDP being higher than inflation in growth terms and their net worth being even higher. And excess money is still in the system. So overall, it's a good environment for income investing. It's also a good environment for growth investing in innovation. And that is, of course, again, you, you very quickly come back to technology and where are the technological leaders in the U.S.? That's right. Well, thank you, Dominic, very much for those ideas. And let's switch gears to precious metals now and bring in Chris Irwin. Chris, by the way, our metals analyst, Karsten Monkey, the way he explains it is the big rise in the gold price that we saw in October and November was driven by short covering in the futures market. And once all those speculators had bought back those shorts, there wasn't anything to keep it going. And that's when gold started to go down. So, Chris, my first question to you is, do you think the speculators will still determine the gold price going forward? And if so, what do you think they're most likely to do? I believe Karsten actually makes an important observation. What was driving that recent move in gold price? During that period, there was a significant short covering on the non-commercial side of COMEX, the U.S. commodities market. But it was also on the speculative side of the market. During that period, there was no other real driver of gold price. So I feel the price action during October, November really can be attributed to this short covering. short covering. Yeah, but I also really feel that at certain times this year, gold has really lacked a unique story that's to drive the price higher. So a lot of the moves have been really dictated by certain flows. 
As you mentioned also with Dominic as well, we've had this high interest rate environment. So gold's really been constantly battling against that. That also makes perfect sense why these speculative positions were put on. They're trying to play it lower with such an aggressive position. But actually, October marked the largest net short in this position we've seen since the end of last year. But it has now been significantly reduced. But actually, after that now, we've seen an increase in the long side of the non-commercial position. Yeah, this length is now... They're getting long gold. Yeah, they've actually this length has now risen to the highest level since around June 2022. But it's actually slightly reduced in the last couple of weeks after gold sort of failed to hold above 2100. So unless we're really challenging the previous highs in the new year, I would maybe expect these longs to also cut positions. Oh, thanks, Chris. So we talked about the speculators. Let me ask you about not speculators, but people who actually buy gold, the real thing, physically back gold products. The holders of those, if you look at the charts, have been falling for two years now. Are people falling out of love with gold? What do you make of that? This is really definitely a notable shift in gold market dynamics. So ETFs have been extremely large drivers of prices of gold over the last decade. We saw, for example, in 2013, heavy redemptions really accelerated the bear market. Yeah. I remember cutting massively. Yeah. And then also, if you look at 2020 with rate slash to zero investors of these physical products pile back in and they push gold price to record highs. But I feel, however, as gold takes on this higher interest rate environment, investor demand for the metal has really diminished. So the ETFs globally have seen around seven millions of redemptions just this year alone. Total holdings now sit just above 85 million ounces, but significantly lower than what we saw in 2020 when there was over 110 million ounces globally. I think despite this lack of interest from the retail investor who tends to buy these products, gold has still continued to make a new all-time high this year. Yes, it has. Yeah, so I feel if these investors were to return to the market going forward, then this could also be another strong driver of higher prices. Right now, they tend to be sitting on the sidelines. So I do wonder what will spur interest from this sector, perhaps lower interest rates going forward or a stronger sustainable bull market in the future. Yeah. Well, we've talked about speculators. We've talked about people who own the actual physical back products, the ETFs. Let me ask you about jewelry. And jewelry, to be precise, is still 45% of demand for gold in the first three quarters of this year. And I think a lot of that is here in Asia, where gold has traditionally been a big part of net assets and households. It's a part of the culture. For example, gold jewelry is the dowry present that's given in many countries in in Asia during weddings. But when I speak with our Indian colleagues, for example, they tell me the younger generation doesn't feel the same way about gold. They don't love it as much. And so my question to you is that with jewelry still such a big part of overall gold demand, 45%, as I said, almost half of them, isn't that a problem for the gold price longer term? Jewelry demand still makes up, as you said, a significant portion of overall gold demand. India and China are accounting for around half the total demand. So India had had interestingly been actively encouraging citizens not to hoard so much physical gold at home in recent years as they felt there was a lot of wealth just sitting in households. But as you said, it's a very, very strong part of culture and seasonality-wise. You see a strong demand at certain periods of the year during wedding seasons, etc. But it's also interesting if you look at the periods of COVID lockdowns in India, Physical gold actually played a significant part in local economies in terms of credit. They were actually able to use local bartering to raise funds at home. So that's actually interesting to me. And that shows that it's still quite significant in part of their culture. Yeah, But also you have to take into account China is another Asian country with really strong historical ties to gold. 
But they're actually looking at it in an interesting way. So, for example, they're encouraging younger generation to actually hold physical gold. But rather than take it in forms of jewelry or bars, they're facilitating them to open gold accumulation bank accounts, which would allow them to accumulate smaller fractional amounts purchased on a regular basis, even down to something like a gram of gold. So demand for gold has also been notably stronger out of North Asia this year. I really feel that the weaker economy, lower deposit rates in China, now we see the falling property market and stock market, it's really pushing young investors back into gold. So actually, if you look at the data recently, gold and silver have actually been amongst the best performing consumer goods in China this year. I was reading recently a survey by one of the largest Hong Kong-based jewelers, and they were saying that 70% of consumers now between 18 and 40 years old are intending to purchase gold jewelry. And they're seeing the shift to the lower end of the market and higher demand from 18 to 25-year-olds. So I find that quite interesting. I find that fascinating. The young people in China are getting even more interested in gold. And also you have to remember that the kilo bar market in Asia is a very actively strong market and very popular product there. Yeah, well, speaking about Asia, let me just say the largest buyer of gold in the world, you already know this, Chris, it's the People's Bank of China. But there are other central banks that have been active this year, too. And what I find interesting is that the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is, of course, Singapore's central bank, has been the third largest buyer of gold in the world so far this year. And and before, correct me if I'm wrong, they never bought gold. Just for people who are interested, the second biggest buyer, so that's in between the People's Bank of China and the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the second largest buyer is the National Bank of Poland. But anyway, why do you think these central banks have been buying so much gold this year, Chris? This is a really interesting question. It's a topic that's had a lot of news coverage. It's actually the last two years. So central banks have really returned to the bullion market in a very large way. And as you mentioned, it's not just the heavy hitters, the big central banks, it's the smaller ones who have also stepped up their purchases. So I think year to date, as of last quarter, we saw central banks buy an incredible amount, 800 tons of gold. So this is greatly outweighing any outflows from the ETFs. Like I think that interesting too. Last year was already the strongest year on record since they began. This year, we're seeing around 14% higher demand. If you actually look back to several years ago, maybe the writing was a little bit on the wall there and we're seeing a little bit of what's going on now. We saw a long period of purchases by the Russian central bank many years prior to the war. So from a tactical standpoint, some central banks have interest to accumulate gold as sort of a war chest or to diversify assets away from dollar base which we have seen after the Ukraine invasion were weaponized quite quickly. But I do feel that some of the smaller central banks are also adopting gold purchases to adjust monetary policy. You just look at the amount of dollars that have been printed since 2020, it's, it's not insignificant. So from that point of view, adding some tactical gold reserves does seem like a smart idea. I see. You brought up the Ukraine invasion, and I went back and looked at the gold price during that period. It rose 5% in the two weeks after the invasion, but then it fell almost 20% over the next seven months. And it seems like kind of the opposite of what it's supposed to do in times of you know, geopolitical unrest. So has it lost its ability to protect against calamity? I mean, God forbid if there was a world war. Do you think the gold price would go up a lot? So we have seen these geopolitical spikes in gold price occur now two times in the last two years, most recently in the wake of the Israel military action in Gaza. These price spikes proved to be more reactionary and kind of unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, it fell quite significantly after the initial spike on Ukraine, and we had a smaller one recently. I think the market becomes slightly more numb to headlines from conflicts, and as they appear to be more geographically contained, prices then tend to soften in following weeks and months and go back to the fundamentals of the market. 
However, I really do feel if we saw a wider scale global conflict or one of these really move out of the region, we would definitely see a large upside price in gold and it would say elevated. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, we all hope it doesn't happen, but I'm told in such an event like a world war, the better thing to own would be silver because if you want to buy some fish, for example, in some dystopian, chaotic world war environment, well, you're probably not going to get a lot of change from a bar of gold, are you? So having silver would be the better thing to do. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with this statement. I do understand gold's appeal as a safe haven asset in terms of an asset allocation, but in terms of dystopian society, as you said, it would be very hard to use gold to transact. You'd have to shave off from the bar. It wouldn't be practical. But that's right. Many Asian investors actually like to hold kilo bars due to their relatively high value and portability, so you can basically hold them in your hand. Whereas if you look at a silver bar, a kilo of silver would be a lot bigger than a kilo of gold. Exactly. So in terms of a store of wealth, the physical size you would need to buy would be impractical, yeah. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, just to be clear, I don't want you to have the impression that we're saying there's going to be a world war anytime soon. That would be a pretty glum way to end the last podcast of the year. We're bullish on 2024. There's no need to buy those silver bars just yet. And with that, we've come to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much, Dominic and Zurich. It's my pleasure, Mark. And thank you, Chris, for being with me here in Singapore. You're very welcome. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now, along with Dominic Mayer and Chris Irwin, and on behalf of Julius Baer, we wish you a very happy holiday and look forward to speaking with you soon in the new year. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbayer.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.